the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. We're glad to have you with us. James Blend is producing. Sam Maupin is engineering today's program. Today we'll hear from Gene Hothouse, who's the author of Managing Worry and Anxiety, Practical Tools to Help You Deal with Life's Challenges. And we'll also take a look at what the Taiwanese church is doing and saying as they anticipate perhaps being the next Ukraine. That's coming up later in the second hour of the program as well. Well, Coin News is reporting that living in a large city often comes at a price, but Portland residents may be shelling out more than most. Well, as the cost of gas and rent continues to spike, I got gas yesterday. It was the first time since prices skyrocketed that I did a complete fill, $50 for my energy-efficient, low-mileage vehicle. It was really quite shocking. Well, as the cost of gas and rent continues to spike along with the rise of inflation, there's a new report that found Portland is now the 12th most expensive large city in the United States. Now, you might debate whether or not we're actually a large city, but that 12th most expensive, uh, that's pretty uh, pretty sobering. Well, the study examined data from the U.S. Bureau of Economic Analysis, their 2020 Regional Price Parities Report, and it investigated the difference in cost of living throughout U.S. cities in an effort to determine where residents get the most of their money. Well, taking into account the cost of consumer goods, services, and housing, the overall cost of living in Portland, the metropolitan area, is 5.7% higher than the national average. The study reported, out of all large U.S. metros, Portland is the 12th least affordable place to live. Least affordable. Of the 55 rather large U.S. cities that were surveyed, the study ranked the Portland-Vancouver-Hillsborough metro area 44th in cost of living affordability. So when we're linked with Vancouver and Hillsborough, we do a little bit better. Well, the data showed Portland residents also pay much more for housing than most of the nation, with average costs about 30.5% above the national average. The study showed some promising trends for Portland residents as well. Despite data revealing the Rose City residents pay 3.8% more for consumer goods than average uh, for the rest of the country, the average personal income in Portland is reported to be $62,603, a little more than $3,000 above the national average of 59510 Well, additionally, the report found that Portlanders pay less in utility costs. Really? I'm not seeing that on my bill, with 9.3% when compared to how much the average American spends. And while the data used in this study was from 2020, which might explain, at least in part, the outcome, the report cites new figures that suggest these trends have only increased since the report. Month over month and year over year, price increases have been at historic highs uh, through much of 2021 and into the current year, 2022, the study went on to say, with categories like energy and vehicles seeing increases of more than 40% since the beginning of 2021. Also, as the study pointed out, rising consumer costs seen in Portland and other large metro regions are largely connected to the rise of inflation. 
The study's author explained the recent changes in inflation have continued to drive up prices within the past two years, which means Portland residents may have to get used to the financial strain. One common measure of inflation is the Consumer Price Index, calculated by the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics. It measures prices paid for a set of typical consumer expenses, including food, energy, transportation, apparel, shelter, and more. The year-over-year percentage change... um, has topped 5% in every month since June of 2021 and reached 7.5% in January of 2022. I think it's uh, 7.6, 7.8 at this point. According to the study, there are several driving factors for the rise in inflation, which we are probably very familiar with. Uh, some of those include recent government stimulus checks, other financial recovery efforts, as well as wage increases driven by a tight labor market. And I understand there are... Uh, uh, debating another recovery, a stimulus check given to uh, U.S. taxpayers, or at least residents. Taxpayers isn't a distinction they're necessarily looking at. In other news, the media is warning of a backdoor property tax increase in uh, the uh, the state of Oregon. This comes after the Secretary of State issued a report criticizing the mortgage interest deduction as something taxpayers don't need. I didn't get that call asking whether or not I needed that. But apparently the secretary of state charged with auditing government waste is now using her audit power to target taxpayers by calling taxpayers wasteful. Well, the secretary of state's message is don't look at the government waste. Look at taxpayers. They're the problem. In other words, you're the problem. Well, for the record, these Oregon taxpayers already pay higher property taxes than the state average. And for the record, Oregon state government is the fourth fattest and biggest pending state per capita in America. Well, the secretary of state doesn't seem to notice the waste in the fourth fattest government in America, but rather in the taxpayers who are already paying more than the average American state in property taxes. Politicians are using our tax dollars to issue reports blaming taxpayers for problems they're not causing. You can read more at OregonWatchdog.com. But be warned of what is uh, what's about to happen next, because Oregon received nearly five billion dollars in COVID funds. Much of it was added to the budget, which means Oregon will need to find more revenue to keep up. You are now officially a cash cow, so to speak. Well, today was the first day of hearings for the um, uh, next Supreme Court justice. I predict she will be. Um, uh, confirmed by the U.S. Senate. But today was the easiest day of that uh, three, four day process. Senator Chuck Grassley, the Republican out of Iowa, said that Katanji Brown Jackson's confirmation hearings won't be a spectacle like the confirmation of Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh. We will conduct a thorough, exhaustive examination of Judge Jackson's record and views. Grassley said we won't try to turn this into a spectacle based on alleged process fouls. Good news on that front. We're off to a very good start. Unlike the start to the Kavanaugh hearings, we didn't have repeated choreographed interruptions of Chairman Durbin during his opening statements. Like Democrats interrupted me for more than an hour during my opening statement on the Kavanaugh hearings, he added. Well, Senator Durbin, chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee, said during his opening statement that Republicans claims that Jackson is soft on crime, uh, crime rather, fly in the face of pledges my colleagues made that they would approach your nomination with civility and respect. Well, they are supposed to provide their advice and consent to do so respectfully by asking questions on the candidate's record. I'm confident the American people will see through these attacks and any other last minute attempts to derail your confirmation, Durbin said 
at the time. Meanwhile, uh, Senator Lindsey Graham said during his opening statement that the same Democrats pushing for Katanji Brown Jackson to become the first black female Supreme Court justice had filibustered a nomination by then President George W. Bush of Janice Rogers Brown, a black conservative. As the historic nature of your appointment, I said, Graham told Jackson during Monday's confirmation hearing. But when I get lectured about uh, Jackson during Monday's confirmation hearing, when I get um, lectured um, uh, about this from my Democratic colleagues, I remember Janice Rogers Brown, an African-American woman that was filibustered by the same people praising you. I remember Miguel Estrada, one of the finest people I ever met, completely wiped out, he continued, referring to Bush 2001 nominee for the United States Courts of Appeal for the District of uh, District of Columbia Circuit, whose confirmation was blocked by Democrats. He didn't make the cut. A well-lived life just completely ruined, Graham said. So if you're a Hispanic or African-American conservative, it's about your philosophy. Now it's going to be about the historic nature of the pick. It's not going to fly with us, he added. We're used to it by now. At least I am. So it's not uh, it's not going to matter a bit to any of us. We're going to ask you what you think. We need to ask you. And they're off to the races. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We will be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Supreme Court nominee Katanji Brown Jackson faced questions about her record on crime when the D.C. Judge Senate confirmation hearing convened today. Now, today was pretty much the easier day. Statements were made. She made her opening comments, and tomorrow the questions began. Judge Katanji Brown Jackson once expressed concern about a climate of fear, hatred, and revenge surrounding sex offenders. And that's one of the issues that's going to be raised during her. Uh, her confirmation process. Is she soft on crime? She later opposed the confinement conditions of a Taliban leader suspected of running a terrorist cell, and that too will be raised during the hearings. The judge also routinely ruled against the Trump administration on immigration enforcement cases as President Joe Biden's Supreme Court nominee. She's going to face questions about her legal career and record on crime when her Senate confirmation convenes uh, for the second day tomorrow. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell this week noted that during a crime wave, Jackson is a favorite among interest groups that are soft on crime. The uh, liberal nonprofit group Demand Justice promoted her as one of its top picks on a list of potential Supreme Court nominees for uh, President Biden. Arabella Advisors, a major bankroller of left of center causes, sponsored the launch of Demand Justice. Well, since June, Jackson has been a judge on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals from 2013 to 2021. She was a judge for the U.S. District Court of uh, for the District of Columbia, and from 2003 to 2005, she was an assistant special counsel for the Sentencing Commission, then a public defender until 2007. So the uh, hearings have begun, and we will be able to uh, listen to her answers and the questions that are put to her. And as was announced earlier today, she will be treated more respectfully than her predecessors in the uh, hearings that took place for the last two Supreme Court nominees. We'll see if that is, in fact, the case. Meanwhile, Clarence Thomas, uh, uh, Associate Justice uh, Clarence Thomas, was admitted to the hospital on Friday evening with flu-like symptoms. Is expected to be discharged if he hasn't already been. He underwent tests, was diagnosed with an infection, and is being treated with intravenous antibiotics. His symptoms were abating. He was resting comfortably, and he's expected to be released from the hospital soon. 
that was the statement from the Supreme Court over the weekend. The court's description of Thomas's symptoms doesn't suggest that he contracted COVID-19. He is vaccinated and boosted against the disease, as are all the justices currently on the bench. In other news, the Virginia Tech swimmer who competed against the Virginia Tech swimmer <laughs> has finally, um, and, and by the way, lost the uh, finals shot to Leah Thomas, has finally spoken out. The former Olympian and Virginia Tech female swimmer blasted the NC2A in a letter on Sunday over their policy of allowing biologically male swimmers to compete against women. They are biologically uh, significantly stronger than women. Rebecca Uh, I think her name is Georgie. Uh, She argued in the letter that the participation of Leah Thomas, the transgender University of Pennsylvania swimmer, effectively resulted in her disqualification since she came in one spot short of making the finals. I swam the 500 free in NC2As on March 17th, 2022, where I got 17th, which means I didn't make it back to the finals and was first uh, the first alternative. I'm a fifth year senior. I have been top of 16 and top eight before, and I know how much of a privilege it is to make finals at a meet this big. She wrote in her letter to the NC2A that was obtained by the Daily Wire. This is my last college meet ever, and I feel frustrated. It feels like that final spot was taken away from me because the NC2A's decision to let someone who is not a biological female compete. I know you could say I had the opportunity to swim faster and I made the top 16, but this situation makes it a bit different, a bit difficult, and I can't help but be angry or sad. It hurts me, my team, and other women in the pool, she went on to say. In other news, the U.S. Surgeon General is urging calm in response to new COVID wave in Europe. The um, U.S. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy urged calm on Sunday as the COVID-19 wave fueled at least partially by a new subvariant of the virus spread across Europe, adding to the pandemic, or rather adding that the pandemic should not define our lives during an appearance On uh, television uh, with Trace Gallagher, Murthy said the country needs to exercise caution with the new spike in Europe, but shouldn't live in fear because of all of the tools at our disposal to combat the disease. We should be prepared that COVID hasn't gone away. There may be rises and falls in the months ahead, but here's the key. Our goal is to keep people out of the hospital. It's to save their lives. We have more tools to do that than ever before. Uh, If we get people these tools, vaccines, boosters, treatments, then we can actually get through waves that may come and go. Meanwhile, Alaska Representative Don Young, the longest serving member of the House, has died at 88. Representative Don Young, a Republican from Alaska, the longest serving member of the current Congress, died on Friday at the age of 88. His office said in a statement, it's with heavy hearts and deep sadness that we announce Congressman Don Young, the dean of the House and revered champion for Alaska, passed away today while traveling home to Alaska to be with the state and people that he loved. The statement said he loved His beloved wife, Anne, was by his side. Young was the dean of the House, the most senior member of either party, and was uh, reelected in 2020 to serve his 25th term. He was running for a 26th. In other news, a recent poll says soaring support for school choice is now evidenced. Alexandra DeSantis says Americans of all stripes are beginning to reach a consensus in favor of school choice and of education policy that favors parental rights. The survey asked respondents about four key areas of education debate, the role of parents, education savings accounts, education freedom scholarships and failing schools. On each question, the majority of all respondents believe that greater education freedom is the correct policy. 
And President Biden labeled Vladimir Putin a war criminal and a U.S. citizen was killed in Ukraine over the weekend. Responding to a reporter's question, the president bluntly stated that Vladimir Putin is, in fact, a war criminal. On Thursday, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken didn't back off from uh, the president's designation, stating yesterday President Biden said that, in his opinion, war crimes have been committed in Ukraine. Personally, I agree. Intentionally targeting civilians is a war crime. The Biden administration has indeed designated Putin a war criminal. Then it has significant ramifications for any future dealings with the Russian strongman. Indeed, how can the administration continue pursuing its desired nuclear deal with Iran, with Russia as the primary player, if it has recognized Putin as a war criminal? Meanwhile, Russia's atrocities against civilians continue, and a U.S. citizen has been killed in the city of uh, Chernyiv, uh, Ukraine. James Whitney Hill was shot by Russian snipers as he stood waiting in a bread line. Hill was a teacher who had uh, been living and working in Ukraine for the past 25 years. He was 67 years old. Meanwhile, Putin called for self-purification against scum and traitors, referring to his own countrymen. Well, Democrats don't believe their own COVID messaging. It's time for Americans to get back to work and fill our great downtowns again, Joe Biden declared in his State of the Union address. People working from home can feel safe to begin to return to the office. While the statement drew a round of applause from lawmakers, many of them haven't embraced it. Nearly a dozen uh, Senate to offices remain closed, including the office of Senate leader Chuck Schumer. It's even worse on the House side, with dozens of offices empty of personnel. Many Democrat lawmakers continue working from home or operating remotely. In fact, thanks to Nancy Pelosi's proxy voting system, uh, one Democrat, Frederica Wilson from Florida, didn't submit a single in-person vote during the entirety of 2021, and her Washington office remains closed in 2022. As several Republicans observed, Democrats just can't give up their COVID theater, end quote. Underscoring this reality, Pelosi on Thursday called for the administration to request an additional $45 billion in new COVID spending, despite the fact that the government has yet to exhaust funding from the previous emergency spending bill or that rampant inflation has been um, caused by COVID spending. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We need to take a quick break, but we will continue to wind our way through the news. And coming up uh, later in the program, Gene Hothaus, who is the author of Managing Worry and Anxiety, Practical Tools to Help You Deal with Life's Challenges. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the House voted to end Russia's favored trade status with the U.S., and a top Russian general was reportedly detained as Putin targets traitors amid Ukraine invasion. Vladimir Putin admits Western sanctions are killing his economy, and mortgage rates in the U.S. top 4% for the first time since 2019. Uber and Lyft drivers are feeling the sting of higher gas prices, as is everybody else. Andrew Cuomo is considering uh, running against uh, the current governor, Kathy Hochul, despite opposition from his own party. Well, Russia fired a nuclear-capable missile that has never been used before in combat. According to the story, on Saturday, Russia said it used a hypersonic a Kizhal uh, missile to strike a Ukrainian munitions warehouse in the western region of the country. The Kiznal, uh, which translates to dagger, is a nuclear-capable missile that has never been used before in combat and also has the ability to travel at 10 times the speed of sound and a range of roughly 1,250 miles. 
The New York Post um, reports that Russian Defense Ministry spokesman Major General Igor uh, said that the high-tech uh, missile carried the MiG-31 fighter jets carried by them, destroyed a large underground ammunition warehouse on Friday in the village near the uh, western region of Ukraine. U.S. officials confirmed Saturday the hypersonic missiles were used, telling CNN they were tracked in real time as they headed toward the former Soviet nuclear base, which is about 380 miles from Kiev and extends 150 feet below ground. Vladimir Putin declined meeting with um, Volodymyr Zelensky, the president of Ukraine. He called uh, publicly on Saturday for direct negotiations with President Vladimir Putin of Russia. But a senior Turkish official said that Mr. Putin was not ready for such talks. Zelensky is ready to meet, but Putin thinks that the positions to have uh, this meeting at the leader's level are not close enough yet. Ibrahim uh, Kalin, a chief advisor and spokesman for the president, uh, um, Erdogan of Turkey said well, from the Times of Israel in an overnight video address on Saturday, Zelensky said Russia is trying to starve his country's cities into submission, but warned that continuing the invasion would exact a toll on Russia for generations. The Ukrainian leader accused the Kremlin of an oversight, uh, an overnight video rather, an overnight video address of deliberately creating a humanitarian catastrophe and appealed again for Putin to meet with him to prevent more bloodshed. Well, Judge uh, Katanji Brown-Jackson's confirmation hearing has begun. Uh, The uh, judge, President Biden's nominee for the Supreme Court, faced the bright lights and the cameras of her four-day confirmation hearing beginning today. She did a great job. In fact, her opening remarks were very impressive, but the hard work begins tomorrow. Jackson has been uh, through this confirmation process three times before when she was nominated to the U.S. Sentencing Commission, to the District Court, and to the the D.C. Circuit Court. A Virginia Tech female swimmer blasted the NC2A after losing a final spot to a man, and Representative AOC tells her live stream audience most people don't know what capitalism is. In a Thursday Instagram story, the progressive congresswoman whispered a secret to her followers. Let me tell you a secret, Ocasio-Cortez said in a whisper. Most people don't really know what capitalism is. Most people don't uh, know what socialism is. But most people are not capitalists because they don't have capitalists' money. They are not billionaires, end quote. Well, the label doesn't matter as much as talking about policies, she continued, still whispering. That's easier to understand. Do you think people should die because they can't afford insulin? Do you think that fossil fuel CEOs should decide whether the planet gets uh, set on fire? Me neither, end quote. It defies comment. Laverne Spicer says, I'll tell you a secret. AOC is an embarrassment to Congress and to women everywhere. She also whispered. Senator Ted Cruz shut down Dr. Fauci's suggestion that restrictions could return from that story. In the Daily Wire on Sunday after Dr. Fauci cited the Centers for Disease Control saying that if the United States saw a significant surge from a COVID-19 variant, particularly one that might result in an increase in hospitalizations, restrictions on public uh, on the public might be reinstituted. From the RNC research, Fauci, if we see a surge in cases, we have to be prepared to pivot and perhaps reinstitute some of those restrictions. Senator Ted Cruz um, rather strongly said no. It was preceded by another word for um, uh, petty tyrants like Fauci. He went on to say they only have one tool in their toolbox, authoritarian and uh, restrictions. Enough is enough. We'll, we'll see what actually happens moving forward. Meanwhile, the Los Angeles Unified School District is requiring staff to participate in woke training. 
uh, the um, district requires its staff to participate in socio-emotional learning training that involved educators agreeing to use students' preferred names and pronouns. According to nonprofit parents group Parents Defending Education, a district staff member said the training consisted of critical social justice gender ideology. The staff member also said staff were led by a restorative justice teacher and that they were uh, given handouts to address instances in which students or staff make an unacceptable error in words or actions that are against gender ideology. The staff member called this training a cult retreat-like experience. Meanwhile, from Parents Defending Education, he said that the trainers called for us to raise our hands if we could commit to using preferred pronouns and stand up if we could commit to using trans students' preferred names. If staff didn't stand up, he explained that it was an obvious sign that you're problematic and bigoted and in the wrong. A Disney movie has restored a homosexual kiss in response to Florida's bail restricting sexual education before third grade. According to the source, close to the production, Pixar's next feature film, Lightyear, does feature a significant female character, Hawthorne, who is in a meaningful relationship with another woman. And while the fact of that relationship was never in question at the studio, the kiss between the characters had been cut from the film. Well, following the uproar surrounding the Pixar employee's statement and Disney CEO Bob Chapek's handling of the Don't Say Gay Bill, as they've named it, uh, the kiss was reinstated into the movie last week. Breitbart says uh, Disney also fell under the attack after reports that the company has given money to sponsors of the bill, which queer activists and their allies have dubbed the Don't Say Gay Bill. Well, last week, after the Walt Disney Company faced the wrath of left-wing activists, the Disney CEO caved to the whole mob and announced that the company is pledging $5 million toward LGBTQ groups in response to the Florida bill. And from Carol Lebu. The trust of parents has been the fuel that built the Disney empire. That trust is fast eroding. We'll see if that translates into anything tangible. Meanwhile, CNN's Brian Stetler doesn't admit he lied despite video evidence. From that story, CNN anchor Brian Stetler on Friday refused to walk back inaccurate claims he uh, promoted on his program when he claimed Hunter Biden's laptop from, well, Hades emails were Russian disinformation. Stetler was also provided with this video, which clearly shows him using the phrase Russian disinformation to refer to the emails and suggesting that they uh, have been made up. Media Research Center says that media pundits lied to you, falsely claiming that the Hunter Biden laptop story was Russian disinformation. Most of the uh, networks who made the claim are not really covering the story. The New York Times broke and authenticated the laptop. And Twitter has suspended the Babylon Bees account for 12 hours over a trans joke. From that story, the satirical site, the Babylon Bee, note satirical, their official Twitter account was suspended from the big tech platform on Sunday for hateful content after posting a joke making fun of U.S. Assistant Health Secretary Rachel Levine, a biological male who identifies as a female. The joke called Levine the satire website's man of the year. Babylon's B CEO, Seth Dillon, says, I just received this notice that we've been locked out of our account for hateful conduct. Once again, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're winding our way through some of the news headlines. And coming up in the second hour, we'll hear from Gene Hothaus, author of Managing Worry and Anxiety, Practical Tools to Help You Deal with Life's Challenges. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. 
But President Biden warned China of consequences for helping Russia in his phone call last week. In a nearly two-hour-long conversation last Friday with Chinese President Xi Jinping, President Biden warned that China would face consequences should it provide material support to Russia in the war with Ukraine. The White House said that the conversation focused on Russia's unprovoked invasion of Ukraine. Also, the president was said to have outlined the views of the United States and our allies and partners on the crisis. As far as Taiwan is concerned, he offered no warnings to Xi, only to uh, reiterate the U.S. policy that opposes any unilateral changes to the status quo. U.S. intelligence has reported that Vladimir Putin has been seeking military and economic aid from China for the past um, For his part, Xi agreed on the importance of maintaining open lines of communication. However, even as China officially condemns Putin's invasion of Ukraine, Xi made no commitment to withhold support from Russia. Meanwhile, the U.S. continues to send military aid to the country. An additional 800 million package of weaponry was sent last week. The latest polling numbers for the president indicate that Scranton Joe is uh, stuck deep in the mud. His approval ratings have remained underwater now for more than 200 consecutive days. He's still got, what, two and a half, three years in his administration. A lot can happen in that period of time. Even with the war in Ukraine, the president, who has uh, thus far kept the U.S. largely out of the conflict, has seen almost no positive rating developments. In fact, his leadership is rightly viewed by many as instrumental in the decision to invade. Combine this with record inflation, spiking gas prices, and 60 percent of Americans now disapproving of his um, uh, leadership. Biden with a whopping 50 percent strongly disapproval, according to Rasmussen. At this point in his presidency, Donald Trump had an approval rating of 47 percent. Biden is down 38 percent. So much for his uh, war bounce that many expected would uh, be the result. Well, Twitter censored biological science over the weekend. The Christian satire outfit, the Babylon Bee, was locked out of their Twitter account. As I mentioned a few moments ago, they posted a humor piece announcing that the Babylon Bee had selected Rachel Levine as the first annual man of the year. Levine is is infamous for being the first transgender individual holding a high office within the federal government. The Bee's primary target for its lampooning was USA Today after the left media outlet recently a decision to in, include Levine in the Woman of the Year list. Twitter dubiously claimed that the bee had violated its hateful conduct rules, uh, which state that you may not promote violence against, threaten, or harass other people on the basis of race, ethnicity, national origin, sexual orientation, gender, gender identity, religious affiliation, age, disability, or serious disease. Clearly, Twitter can't um, take uh, anyone joking about its preferred um Subjects. Rather, everyone is expected to bow and promote the lie of transgenderism. Thank you, B. Uh, thankfully, rather, B. CEO Seth Dillon refused to back down, slating truth is not hate speech. It's, uh, if the cost of telling the truth is the loss of our Twitter account, then so be it. Now, some women might consider uh, the man on the list being um, a form of hate, but that doesn't count. In the 21st century, Justice Clarence Thomas has been hospitalized this past Friday. The Supreme Court justice was sent to um, Sibley Memorial Hospital in D.C. after suffering flu-like symptoms. He's expected to be released if he hasn't already been released. Representative Don Young, the most senior member of Congress, has died at 88. A Georgia ballot harvesting probe advances as the state's election board approved a subpoena. And over 170,000 migrants have amassed at the southern border, anticipating the president's easing of border restrictions. Russia backed down on its demands in the Iran nuclear deal talks, making revival of the 2015 pact imminent. 
The U.S. has sent Patriot missiles to Saudi Arabia despite deteriorating relations. A same-sex kiss has been restored to Pixar's latest movie, Lightyear, following a staff uproar. And a federal judge has encouraged all of his colleagues to carefully consider whether the Yale Law School students who've attempted to shut down a bipartisan panel on free speech should be disqualified from potential clerkships. D.C. Circuit Judge Lawrence Silberman on Thursday to all federal judges in the United States sent an email urging them to take the fracas at the nation's top law school seriously. And China reported the first COVID-19 deaths in over a year. Wink, wink. At least they admitted Anthony Fauci says he's considering retiring, and over 400 companies have withdrawn from Russia, but some Western brands are pretty locked in. Ten million civilians have fled the war in Ukraine, according to top U.N. officials. Well, on this day in history, 1865, Confederate President Jefferson Davis signs a measure allowing black slaves to enlist in the Confederate States Army with the promise they would be set free. In a demonstration of irony, 1901, Benjamin Harrison, the 23rd president of the United States, dies in Indianapolis at 67. 1925, the Tennessee General Assembly approves a bill prohibiting the teaching of the theory of evolution. Governor Austin Pay uh, would sign the measure on the 21st of March. 1964, bar manager Catherine Kitty Genovese, 28, is stabbed to death near her Queens, New York home. The case would gain notoriety over the apparent reluctance of her neighbors to respond to her cries for help. 1996, a gunman bursts into an elementary school in Dunblane, Scotland, and opens fire, killing 16 children and one teacher before taking his own life. On this day in history, 2013, George Bergoglio of Argentina, an elected pope, is elected pope, choosing the name Francis and becoming the first pontiff from the Americas and the first from outside Europe in more than a millennium. 2018, on his first trip to California as president, President Trump accuses the state of putting the entire nation at risk by refusing to take tough action against illegal immigration. And finally, on this day in history, 2018, Joy Behar of the Bue She apologizes for suggesting that mental illness is behind claims by people that Jesus Christ speaks to them. Her comments came during a discussion about the vice president, Mike Pence. Well, experts say American shoppers will begin to see higher grocery bills as the war in Ukraine threatens global food supplies. As war continues to ravage the country, Americans, particularly those who live paycheck to paycheck, are beginning to feel the financial squeeze on their food prices from the conflict halfway around the world. It started with a rapid rise in gas prices. Now with Russian oil banned in the United States and energy scarcity heightened globally, experts say shoppers can expect their grocery bills to rise in coming months, especially if Ukraine misses its wheat planting season. And that's a real possibility. It comes um, an absolutely horrible time for American consumers because we're looking every day at inflation almost reaching 10 percent, a supply um, a chain expert and founder of Potomac Core said well, last month's figure was closer to 8 percent. And that means that consumers, including those that are living paycheck to paycheck, are going to pay more for food. Russia and Ukraine produce 25 percent of the global wheat supply, according to the Observatory of Economic Complexity. And while neither of these countries export wheat to the U.S. directly, their absence from the global market is expected to strain supply and push prices higher. All of this. Um, 
a scarcity from natural gas and crude oil to wheat and seed oil will impact the cost of doing business for food manufacturers at home. Uh, one um, uh, expert who uh, drove into global supply chain issues during the pandemic in his recent book and wrote about it said that with the rising cost of inputs, some companies won't have a, a choice but to raise the cost of their products for the end of uh, end user. To him, it all comes down to the rising cost of energy at every step of the supply chain. But it's not limited solely to that. Everything from getting food from the ground to producing it to storing it, delivering it. It all involves energy. Natural gas is utilized to manufacture those foods. Then when you get past that, uh, you get uh, into logistics. You've got a store. There's uh, food products. There's gasoline to ship and there's electricity to store. It's energy costs that are going to choke consumers at every level as food companies need to stay competitive. One industry facing particular strain is the baking industry. With wheat as a primary ingredient and natural gas used to for large-scale industrial ovens, bakers are grappling with using uh, rather rising costs of doing business. Just one area, one example, one more example of some of the area where there is strain. That the war in Ukraine and inflation is near a uh, dangerous high. Experts are warning that this could have a major impact on prices of virtually everything we actually need. Well, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a break for news and traffic here at the top of the hour. Uh, also in the second hour, Gene Holthouse will uh, join us, managing worry and anxiety, practical tools to help you deal with life's challenges. That's coming up. And we'll also consider what the uh, church in Taiwan is doing as they consider and have considered, I suppose, for a very long time, if they'll be next. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in the next couple of segments, we're going to hear from Gene Halthouse, who is the author of Managing Worry and Anxiety, Practical Tools to Help You Deal with Life's Challenges. We'll also take a look at the, the church in Taiwan and how they're managing with the prospect of um, war with China if you can put it in such a way. Well, cooperation between Russia and China will only increase because the West is disrupting the foundations of the international system. That's a quote from Russian Foreign Minister Lavrov at a, a weekend uh, conversation after the president in a video um, urged Chinese President Xi Jinping not to support Moscow's invasion of Ukraine. This engagement will strengthen the state news agency task, quoted Lavrov as saying, at a national management competition. In the conditions when the West rudely undermines the pillars on which the global system rests, of course, we need to think how two great powers will continue to be in the world, end quote. Well, Lavrov, who served as the Kremlin's foreign minister for 18 years, mocked the U.S. for thinking it could apply pressure on other powerful countries to demand that these countries end cooperation with Russia under the threat of sanctions. We would understand if they did this with small countries, he said. But when such ultimatums and demands are given to China, India, Egypt or Turkey, it looks like our American colleagues have totally lost touch with reality or their superhuman complex has overwhelmed their sense of normalcy, end quote. Well, in a separate interview with the pro-Kremlin RT network, Lavrov uh, touched on the subject again, saying there are players who would never accept the global village under the American sheriff in China, India, Brazil, Argentina, Mexico. I am sure these countries do not want to be just in the position where Uncle Sam orders them something and they say, yes, sir, he said. 
Well, after Friday's uh, Biden-Xi conversation, the White House said in a readout of the president's um, conversation that he detailed our effort to prevent and then respond to the invasion, including its imposing costs on Russia. He described the implications and consequences if China provided material support to Russia as it conducts brutal attacks against Ukrainian cities and civilians. A senior administration official briefing on the background after the call declined to spell out what the consequences the president laid out for Xi during that two-hour interaction, but saying the president described the implications uh, if China provides material support to Russia as it prosecutes this brutal war. The official said, but I'm not going to talk. I'm not going to sort of publicly lay out our options from here. So while apparently there were what consequences laid out, we won't know what they are. Well, Saudi Arabia says it won't bear any responsibility for a shortage of oil supplies. Unusually stark warning marked a departure from the giant oil producer. Well, Saudi Arabia said uh, on Monday that it won't bear any responsibility for the shortage of global oil supplies after the fierce barrage of attacks by Yemen's Houthi rebels affected production in the kingdom, the world's largest oil exporter. The unusually stark warning marked um, a bit of a different approach. The oil producers typically cautious statements as Saudi officials remain aware that even their smallest comments can swing the price of oil and rattle global markets. Well, the statement came as the kingdom remains in lockstep with OPEC and other oil producing countries in a deal limiting increase in production and as energy prices rise higher with Russia's war on Ukraine. Already, Americans have had to pay record breaking prices at the pump for gasoline. Well, if Republicans can illuminate the um, risks of engaging in commerce with our Iranian nemesis, many businesses will decide those risks are not worth running. Well, that's an answer to a question posed by Andrew McCarthy. What can Republicans do about the president's Russia-engineered Iran nuclear deal? Well, it's unconscionable. That is how Senator Ted Cruz uh, described the Biden administration's determination to lift the economic sanctions against Iran, the sanctions that former President Trump reimposed when he announced the Obama-Biden administration's Iran nuclear deal. He renounced it. Because it's unconscionable, Cruz insisted that Congress must put a stop to it. Well, the senator has been a champion of American national security interests when it comes to the fights against both the 2015 Nuclear Pact, formerly known as the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, and the even greater abomination with which President Biden, in collusion with the Russian strongman Vladimir Putin of all people, is scheming to replace that very act. Nevertheless, the senator is also a constitutional law expert. His word choices are rarely idle. Notice, uh, he said Biden's scheme is unconscionable. He didn't say illegal. Therein lies the problem, along with the problem of having only one Ted Cruz when, on Iran, we need 60 to force the uh, overhaul of bad law in the Senate. The fact is that Congress, especially the Senate, has abdicated with the framers uh, what the framers presumed would be a partnership with the president in conducting foreign policy, a partnership we should stress that was designed to proceed with uh, wariness about entanglements, even with friendly foreign governments. As we had um, uh, have pointed out many times during the uh, debate Seven years ago, the Constitution gave presidents a free hand to conduct foreign policy, but consequential agreements with foreign powers, treaties that would impose enduring obligations on the American people, they have to be submitted to the Senate for its advice and consent. The Constitution's um, a bias is against treaties, however. 
They may not be ratified by the president unless the Senate has consented by a two-thirds supermajority. The framers' intention is manifest because foreign powers are not accountable to the American people and we, therefore, are in no position to ensure that their actions now or in the future will comport with American interests. We should never make a binding agreement with a foreign power unless it so patently advances American security and prosperity that it can command uh, overwhelming approval from senators who must face voters. Well, the question is whether or not that will be the case this time around. It certainly wasn't uh, seven years ago when the original agreement was um, agreed to uh, and is now being presented once again, being um, advocated by the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, which is absurd enough in and of itself. Well, 17 months late, millions short, the New York Times on the Hunter Biden laptop, they finally admitted, well, it's actually a story. Michael Isakoff, once the top investigative reporter for Newsweek, tweeted something unintentionally humorous about the New York Times story. In the category of didn't see this coming, he wrote, the New York Times confirms the authenticity of Hunter Biden's emails derived from the laptop that he had been previously dismissed as Russian disinformation. Well, the obvious joke about didn't see this coming is that Hunter Biden's laptop Top, laptop, rather, is one of those uh, scandals that would prefer to squash until the 2028 election. In October of 2020, Twitter and Facebook heavily censored New York Post stories on the sto- on the uh, laptop with the excuse that security officials, guess which party, cried Russian plot. Well, as columnist Tim Carney notes, it's late for um, griping about big tech censorship back then, but it still underlines the question. Just what are the tech platforms and the major media colluding to lie about right now? What are the gatekeepers covering up today? Well, let's add to that. Why is a news story illegitimate until prestige media outlets arrive on the scene years after the original conservative scoop? Well, the Times story was buried on page A20 at the, uh, of the print edition on St. Patrick's Day in the second half of the paragraph, paragraph 23. A trio, Katie Benner, Kenneth Vogel, and Michael Schmidt, announced the Times obtained the emails from a cache of files that appears to have come from a laptop that was left abandoned by Mr. Biden in a Delaware repair shop. Appears. So even now, they're reluctant to admit that they got it wrong seven years ago, or rather 17 months ago, and millions short. Well, let's see, there's a lot of other things that we could get into but won't have time because we have an interview with uh, Jean Hofhaus, who is the author of Managing Worry and Anxiety, Practical Tools to Help You Deal with Life's Challenges. We'll, uh, that interview coming up in just a few moments. Also, we're going to take a look at what's uh, happening in Taiwan as the church um, is wary, they're watching, and they're praying about the potential for a Chinese uh, effort to, well, return it, as the Chinese would say, to its rightful place with the Chinese mainland. That's coming up uh, later in today's program. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Christians deal with anxiety and worry just as much as anyone else, sadly, but many feel guilty about it because Scripture tells us quite clearly not to be anxious for anything. Well, what should Christians do when they do struggle with anxiety? 
Are they bad Christians for worrying? And how can they help others who are experiencing extreme anxiety? Well, in her new book, Managing Worry and Anxiety, my next guest uh, uh, writes about um, uh, how we can manage these things and provides practical tools to help you deal with life's challenges. Jean Halthouse is a licensed therapist of 24 years and director of Two Pines Rest Clinics. She integrates both the psychological and spiritual aspects of anxiety through research-driven and faith-informed methods. In the book, she covers the difference between healthy and unhealthy anxiety and worry, factors that may indicate someone has an anxiety disorder, how to help a loved one with an anxiety disorder, and some key scales to help manage anxiety, and how uh, one's views of God impacts the level of anxiety one experiences. She provides simple, practical strategies to tackle anxiety and worry, showing how to use the five senses to live in the present moment and tactics to suspend judgment through guided questions. Well, Jean Hulthouse has some more, as I mentioned, more than 25 years experience providing therapy. She currently works as a clinician and manages two clinics for Pine Rest Christian Mental Health Services. Her professional experience includes working with individuals, couples, families, and much more. She's a member of the National Association of Social Workers and the American Association of Christian Counselors. She lives in Pella, Iowa, and we are delighted to have her with us today to talk about her latest book, Managing Worry and Anxiety, Practical Tools to Help You Deal with Life's Challenges. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. I'm glad to be able to be a part of this. This is such a poignant subject um, for us today. Perhaps we should begin by defining worry and anxiety. Uh, Are we talking about a clinical um, anxiety or are we talking about someone who just is agitated? Can you help us understand how you're using these terms? Sure. Um, And that's actually part of what makes this so hard is that we use those words interchangeably. Yes. And it makes it hard to tell if we're, you know, having an anxious moment or someone that has an anxiety disorder. So I think about it in terms of we all are created by God to have a healthy, anxious response when there's something external to us that is a threat. So if a car veers into my lane of traffic, I'm going to have anxiety. And that anxiety is going to push my body into fight, flight, or freeze, which it needs to in order for me to react so that I steer away from that car rapidly or whatever the threat is. But it's healthy anxiety because it helps me deal with an external threat. And as soon as that threat passes, the anxiety begins to dissipate too. So that would be what we would call healthy anxiety. And that's not what Paul was talking about mm-hmm. in Scripture when he says, be anxious for nothing. But then there's this next step over, which we would call worry more, and that's what Paul's talking about when he talks about anxiety. And it's where we're actually responding to something that's not actually present in the current moment. We're either thinking about things in the future that haven't happened yet, and we're doing all of the what-ifs about those things, or we're thinking about things in the past and doing the coulda, shoulda, oughta. And in those situations, we have no power to change those things. And there are places where we have to trust our past to God because he's taking care of that. And we need to trust our future to God because he says he'll provide for it. And then one step beyond that is what happens when people get a clinical diagnosis of an anxiety disorder, which is actually a chemical imbalance within the body, which is causing it to live in fight, flight, and freeze either all the time or intermittently when without us kind of knowing when it's going to happen. Um, so there's kind of that continuum there. Aside from this being displeasing to God, if we have crossed the line into what's healthy, um, what, what are the consequences to us as individuals when we um, experience anxiety that's unchecked, that's, that's in the unhealthy range? 
Sure. Um, actually, if you look at what happens um, for worry and what happens in an anxiety disorder is your body is kind of stuck in that fight, flight, freeze pace, space, which means it's pumping out all sorts of adrenaline and other chemicals into your body all the time, which causes it to be under chronic stress, and it affects virtually every system in your body and causes it to begin to degrade and break down. So there's just this litany of physical problems that comes from living anxious or worried all of the time or even a lot of the time. So it affects our physical body. It makes it really hard and steals our joy and our peace in the present moment, too. So it affects us psychologically as well. And it's really hard to have a relationship with God when we're kind of trying to play God and figure out all the answers without having to trust him. So it affects every aspect of our life when we're living in those places. Hmm. So when we acknowledge that we suffer from uh, inordinate worry or anxiety, what's the first place we need to start? I suppose acknowledging the fact that, that this is a struggle, but where do we go from there? Sure. It's, and oftentimes it's hard to tell that difference between am I living in that kind of worry zone where it's a bad habit or do I have actually a physical condition? And so I always tell people, start with going and getting a physical um, because we want to rule out physical things that could be wrong with your body that might be causing it to do that um, and make sure that you're healthy in those ways first and then start looking at, okay, I'm going to need some help to retrain my body and retrain my mind to do things differently. And I may be able to do that on my own. I may need the help of an accountability group of some sort. I might need a therapist to help me kind of sort through why am I doing what I'm doing and are there other ways for me to live and build new habits. So it's kind of a process and and recognizing we have to learn to do it differently. We don't just wake up and kind of vow we're going to do it differently and have it work. Now, we might think of worry and anxiety as being a biological response alone, but you have a chapter titled How We Think and What We Think Affect Anxiety. So a lot of what what goes on in our mind has an impact that does have physical consequence, uh, but has significant uh, significance in terms of how we uh, express this uh, very unhealthy thing when it's reached that level. Can you talk a little bit about mm-hmm. how we think and what we think of uh, how that affects anxiety? Sure. Um, so if we if we were to use an example of like let's say that I am going to go for a job interview. That should produce a little bit of anxiety for any of us, right? But if in my head I am worrying about all the things that I might say that are wrong and all of the ways I might make a fool of myself or um, all of the reasons this person might not like me, then I'm going to be running things in my head that are going to notch my anxiety up above that normal level that any of us would have into a place where it's going to be hard to think and it's going to be hard to answer questions that an interviewer might have for me. And I'm also actually in a place where I'm not thinking well of myself, which makes it hard to put my best foot forward in that place. Um, And so uh, as an alternative, if I go to that interview and I think to myself, I'm going to put, give my best shot. And if they like me and God wants me to have this job, then um, we'll go forward. And if not, I'll keep looking. That's going to let me be a little calmer about that job. And it's going to let me answer questions differently than if I'm worrying about doing the right answer and keeping everybody happy is going to do. So how I think about it is going to affect the level of anxiety I have, and it's also going to affect what I do in the end. You offer three skills. You you write about um, how these skills have been proven to effectively help manage anxiety. What are these skills, and can they be useful to anyone who is struggling in this area? (laughs) 
they can be useful to anybody. That's part of the reason I chose those three to write about is because whether or not you have normal levels of anxiety, you're kind of in that worry zone, or you have actually a clinical disorder, these skills will be helpful. Um, and they're the skills of learning to live in the present moment, um, learning to live without judging yourself and others, and then learning to live believing that you and God are competent to handle what comes at you. Um, and I call all three of those skills because that's exactly what they are. We don't come into the world knowing how to do any of those things. We have to learn them all, and we have to practice them over and over and get better at them over time. And so if we think about it that way, that we're having to learn to do those things, it's more helpful than just being mad at ourselves that we can't do mm-hmm. them. That's good. You use the story in Exodus about the uh, Israelites to help give us a picture of um, of how to effectively manage um, our, uh, our or to develop these skills and use those skills uh, in trying to um, to manage our anxiety. Can you tell us a bit about that story, how it relates to us in the 21st century and can help us manage and relieve our anxiety? Sure. It's actually one of the stories God has used over and over again in my life because when the Israelites leave um, Egypt, they don't have, they run out of food and they legitimately are hungry. And basically God says, I'm going to give you what you need for the moment that you're in. You can only have enough manna for today. And if you try to get enough for tomorrow today, it's not going to work. It's going to rot. And it does. So every day they have to trust him that he's going to give them what they need for that day. And they can't use what he gave them for that day for the next day. It doesn't work. And that's where we get into a lot of trouble is that we take what God's given us for today and we try to figure out how we could use that to solve problems that might happen tomorrow or 20 years from now. And then we always feel like we don't have what we're going to need then because the manna that God gives us for today is for today and it's for today's problems. It's not enough for what will happen tomorrow or the next day, but he will give us that tomorrow. Um, and kind of they had to learn that over and over and over in the desert, walking with him for um, weeks and months and years, so that when they come back up to the Jordan River to cross over, they can trust that when they step into that river, he's going to give them what they need. And when they cross over into the promised land and they're going to have to drive out the giants that they know are there, he'll give them what they need. So he had to teach them that. For them, for it took 40 years for them to learn it enough to be able to trust that much. And that's kind of comforting to me because I've lived longer than 40 years and I still don't have it all down pat, but I'm a little better than I was. (laughs) Well, that is somewhat comforting to know that it's going to take a little time. God's not surprised by that and that he's going to continue to, uh, to teach us. We need to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation. Again, we're talking this afternoon about um, uh, the book, uh, Managing Worry and Anxiety, Practical Tools to Help You Deal with Life's Challenges. Uh, Jean Holthouse is our guest. The book is published by Ravel. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, continuing my conversation with Jean Holthouse. She is the author of Managing Worry and Anxiety, Practical Tools to Help You Deal with Life's Challenges. One of the uh, things that you write about in the book is living in the moment, and you suggest an activity that we can adopt to help us learn to be in the moment rather than uh, projecting uh, into the future and worrying about what may or may not happen or looking back and fretting over what has already happened. How can we, what are some of the activities or at least one um, that we can adopt to help us learn to be in the moment? 
one of the things you can do is to use your senses because if you can't see it, hear it, feel it, touch it, or taste it in the present moment, uh, those are the only things that are in the present moment are the things that you can use your senses to observe. And a lot of what we're worrying about has no no basis in the present moment. And so when we find our brain kind of off on one of those what ifs, we just come back to, wait a minute, what can I see right now? What can I hear right now? What can I physically feel right now? It helps us to come back to the moment and know that you're going to need to do that over and over again where our minds are not very well trained. So, you know, you bring yourself back to the moment and you become aware, okay, I'm sitting in my chair. And then you find yourself off thinking about something in the future again. And you just got to be kind to yourself and just keep bringing yourself back. And as you do that over and over and you use your senses to kind of bring you back to the moment, gradually over time, that muscle of staying in the present moment strengthens, but it'll take time and you can use your senses to help you be aware of when you're in the moment and when you're not. Oh, that's so good. How does judgment feed into worry and anxiety? Uh, And can you give us an example? Sure. Um, We all would, we all probably know the scripture that says, don't judge lest ye be judged. And we tend to think about that as, you know, the big things where I'm condemning something or someone like that or something like that. But judgment is any time we take one of our opinions and we turn it into a fact and we act as though it's a fact. And those things increase our distress. And they increase our distress because we're either putting ourselves above someone else or we're putting someone else above us. And because we walk through our days kind of constantly grading ourselves against other people or grading other people, um, we assume that other people are doing that with us as well, and it makes us more anxious as we go through our days. And God says, basically, he's the one that knows to judge, and he's the one that knows ultimate truth, and we're supposed to come to him for those answers. We're not supposed to be trying to figure it out ourselves. And when we can let go of that and just accept the moment we're in and figure out what to do that brings life in that moment, that's when we can um, let go of the judgment and we can live more fully in that moment. But it's really hard to let go of judgment, and we like to judge a lot because I always kind of want to know, like, where do I rank with everybody else rather than knowing, wait a minute, I come before God as just me, and he's not judging me anymore because Jesus has already died for everything he would judge me for. So I come to him already accepted. You write about um, unconditionally accepting reality which, again, Mm -hmm. is uh, something that we can do that keeps us in the present. What do you mean by that, unconditionally accepting reality? Well, it kind of means letting go of the shoulds and the oughts and the coulds and looking at, okay, this is what's here. Whether or not I like it, it is what it is. So now how am I going to be effective rather than trying to decide it shouldn't be that way? So if um, I have just lost a job, I can't really do anything about getting another job until I can accept, okay, I have lost this job. As long as I'm in that place of judging, well, I shouldn't have lost this job, I should have done this, I should have done that, well, my boss should have, should have, should have. As long as we're doing that, we're not really accepting the reality. When I can say, okay, I am currently jobless. This is the reality. What do I want to do with that? Then I'm in that place of accepting it and I'm ready to move forward and I'm less anxious. You um, have a chapter titled, Our View of God Affects Anxiety. Um, Again, we often feel guilty if we are experiencing um, uh, being anxious or worrying. But how does our view of God 
feed our understanding of our current situation that may produce anxiety or we may find rest in because of how we view him. Mm-hmm. In the book, I use myself as an example um, because I grew up in a Christian home um, and was raised in the church. But yet my view of God, um, I discovered as an adult, was a little off because I always viewed him as someone who loved me. But it was kind of this love like, well, I have to love her, not that he actually liked me. And it was much more that he loved me because he had to, but he was up there kind of keeping track of all my mistakes. And somehow I could make enough mistakes that, you know, he was just going to kind of give up on me. Um, and that view of God then makes one really, really anxious and really, really concerned about making sure you do all the do's that he writes in the Bible and don't do any of the don'ts because you don't want to make him mad, right? Versus if, I, and as I learned over time, that that's not how God thinks about us. God loves us exactly the way we are, and he likes us exactly the way they are, we are. There's a verse in Colossians that when it's written in um, the Living Bible that was the original Living Bible, not the New Living Bible, it says that we stand before him right now with nothing that he could even chide us for. So he's not up there keeping a list of everything we do that's wrong. He's up there saying, we can do this. We can do it. Let's keep trying again. We'll get there. Um, and we have, when we have that sort of a view of God, then we can be much more relaxed and we can come to him rather than being afraid of him. One of the things that can produce anxiety is being in a position where we have to make a decision. It can be an insignificant, small decision or a major decision, but that's often anxiety producing for a lot of people. Um, explain how doing what brings life helps us let go of that anxiety when we're in a position where we are are forced essentially to make a decision. Mm -hmm. And we have a lot of those decisions every day as adults where we have to decide. And oftentimes we're trying to figure out what is the exact right decision or what's the wrong decision. And in many ways, that's very much like where God said in the Garden of Eden, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of what's right and wrong. Instead, eat from the tree of life. He gave us permission to eat from the tree of life. Um, and when we look at a situation and we look at, okay, what is going to bring forth life here? It's going to bring forth life for me and others, both in the short term and in the long term. Then I can move in that direction and I can trust that God's going to be with me in that. Instead of when I'm sitting and trying to contemplate exactly what's the right thing or what's the wrong thing, that's very hard to determine because we're not wired up for that. Um, and it, And we have to trust that. God's bigger than we are, and he knows the decisions that we're going to make, and he's willing to work with us on those decisions um, and get us where we need to be. That There's not some decision we're going to make that he can't figure out how to help us through. Um, so it doesn't mean we can go recklessly off doing whatever we want, because we are told that we're supposed to do those things which bring life, not the things that would bring death or that violate his word. Um, and the things that violates were really don't bring life ever. If you look at long term, they might bring life in the moment, but they don't do that long term. So if we just consistently are looking at, okay, I'm going to trust that God's big enough that he's going to get me through this if I don't do it just right, but I'm going to work consistently to seek him and to seek what will bring life, um, then we don't have to be afraid of the decision because we know that he's with it. In, he's with us in it. We're talking about the book, Managing Worry and Anxiety, Practical Tools to Help You Deal with Life's Challenges, published by Ravel. Throughout the book, you provide very practical activities for readers to undertake in order to tackle their uh, anxiety. Now, why are these activities important to complete, and how does that help us long-term in dealing with uh, anxiety or the, the temptation 
uh, toward uh, responding with anxiety in the future? Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's really important to realize that we didn't, we weren't born worrying. Um, I've never seen a baby that worries. And we learned how to worry over time, and we learned it as a coping strategy because little kids believe that they're kind of the center of the world. Therefore, if they could predict all of the things that might go wrong, they can stop them from happening. Um, and the example I use with my clients is that's a little bit like slamming your finger in the door just in case you hit it with a hammer later. But because <laughs> we've learned to do that, we've learned to practice that worry skill, we're going to have to learn different skills to replace it. And it doesn't do much good to try it one day and, well, I didn't get it right, so I guess I can't. We more have to think about it as training ourselves, training our minds to do things differently, and it's going to take time, and you have to build on it slowly over time. So my attempt in the book was to break things down into small steps that you could try one step and then build onto it over time. And maybe you try one thing for a period of time, and then you come back to the book and you look at adding the next piece in um, because you're going to need to train yourself to do this um, new of skills to replace the old worry set that you already had. And again, the subtitle of the book is Practical Tools to Help You Deal with Life's Challenges. The book is titled Managing Worry and Anxiety. Gene Holthouse, thank you so much for talking with us today. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for allowing me to. It's been great to be on your show. Again, the book Managing Worry and Anxiety, Practical Tools to Help You Deal with Life's Challenges, published by Ravel. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Much of our attention has rightfully been focused on the war in Ukraine. What's happening next? We're praying alongside the church. We're concerned about its people. But I noted um, that Christians, the church in Taiwan, is also concerned about what their future might hold, saying Ukraine today Taiwan tomorrow. Well, the island's Christians are warily watching and they're praying and we can come alongside them and pray with them. Well, few Taiwanese churches are willing to speak out on China related political issues for reasons that we don't need to explain. Surprising believers who left Hong Kong, but all the leaders call for peace seeking. That may be an impossible move on their part, but that's what they're focused on. Well, several weeks before Russia's invasion, the chairman of United Missions of Taiwan gathered with international missionaries and prayed both for Ukraine and Taiwan. Now, many in the group approached him as the only Taiwanese in the room to express their concern for his homeland situation. Later, he scrolled through his Facebook news feed. His friends back on the island were posting cheery photos of hot pot gatherings and vowing to lose weight after stuffing themselves over the Chinese New Year holiday. And it felt like his fellow missionaries were talking about a different Taiwan. It was weird, he says, and his name is Ray Peng. I don't know how to explain it. Well, he compared the typical nonchalance of the Taiwanese people to his in-laws who live in an earthquake-prone city on the east coast of Taiwan. An earthquake once hit while uh, Peng visited them, and he was immediately concerned by its strength. But his in-laws brushed it off. They were accustomed to the tremors. Likewise, Taiwanese who've lived under the threat of invasion by mainland China their whole lives go on with daily life without thinking too much about it. 
But the cracks began to show on the 24th of February. He says the Russian invasion has resonated with many Taiwanese emotionally as they've watched news clips from Ukraine and what could one day become their own reality. Well, online, some declare it's Ukraine today. Taiwan tomorrow, while pundits debate whether the U.S. military would really come to Taipei's uh, Taipei's aid in the case of an invasion by Beijing. Now, we've said a lot about what we are willing to do and obligated to do, but now they're questioning, would the United States actually do anything? TV news stations have recommended what to include in emergency packs such as Japanese canned bread. Yet on Sunday mornings, many churches don't broach the topic outside of naming Ukraine as a prayer item. Congregants uh, span a variety of political views on the China-Taiwan relations, from those who want Taiwan's independence on the one hand to those who wish to unify with China on the other, to just get it over with. Still, Christian leaders are seeking to, to view the ongoing geopolitical conflicts through a biblical lens and find hope in their faith in a time of uncertainty. Now, how might we approach such a... Uh, uh, possibility occurring in the near future. While Taiwan is 5,000 miles from Russia's war in Ukraine, that invasion has struck a chord in the island of 23.6 million residents, which faces its own existential threat. China says that Taiwan is its territory and has long threatened to use force to bring Taiwan into its fold. No one doubts that they will, in fact, do just that. Cross-straits relations have ebbed and flowed over the past 70 years, yet the threat has recently intensified due to a confluence of factors. The deterioration of relations between China and the United States, Chinese President Xi Jinping's consolidation of power and strengthening of China's military, and Taiwan's president increasingly close ties to the West. A top U.S. admiral made headlines last year when he said China could launch an invasion of Taiwan in the next six years. If anybody relates to the situation of being a small democratic country living in the shadow of a larger non-democratic country, I think the Taiwanese have a very unique perspective on that. That's a quote from a Ukrainian-American, Alex Komenke, who has uh, been protesting the war in his recent um, in his current home in Taipei. Now, many Taiwanese churches, they keep politics and faith separate. Pastors avoid discussing perceived political topics from the pulpit to prevent division and arguments something quite common in the early church and throughout history. Politics in Taiwan is very divisive. Often lawmakers from the Beijing-friendly KMT party and the independence-leaning Democratic Progressive Party break into to fist fights over legislation. It is a volatile subject. Well, at the root of the division is identity. Supporters of one side often belong to families who have lived for generations in Taiwan, including under Japanese colonization, while supporters of the other side have connection to those who fled to the Nationalist Army from China to Taiwan at the end of the Chinese Civil War in 1949. Their backgrounds uh, factor into how they view Taiwan, China, and their relations. It's very similar to uh, the church here in the U.S. We have different backgrounds, different histories, and we come to different conclusions on a variety of political issues. But does it produce quarrels within the church? Well, to maintain peace, many of the churches try to stay neutral in Taiwan. Doug Dung, who understands this challenge firsthand, is the general secretary of the Chinese Coordination Center of World Evangelism, a coalition of Chinese churches outside mainland China. He needs to remain diplomatic on numerous topics, including Taiwan's status. He stresses instead what the church has in common. 
Since we are joined together by the gospel, we need to return to God's word. The gospel has criticism for all of our ideologies, he said. He doesn't take a political stance when he's preaching, but instead tries to teach what the Bible says about a given topic. He believes a pastor's job is to equip his or her congregants to view all issues from a Christian worldview. Yet at some point, the situation may become so urgent that pastors have the responsibility to speak out. But when it is that time, it's really an art. And many times you can't see it clearly until after the fact, the pastor says. Pastors are in danger of either becoming self-righteous or staying silent, he added. It's, uh, it really needs wisdom. And as we're considering what's happening today in Ukraine, we might also consider the challenge that pastors face in Taiwan as the inevitable conflict Uh, draws nearer, whether that's six years from now or six months from now. No one knows except for the Chinese Communist Party that may have already made that decision. We certainly can stand in solidarity with believers and pray that God's will would prevail in this uh, tiny island. Well, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We are out of time. I want to thank James Blind for producing, Sam Maupin for engineering today's program. And thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Tomorrow we'll have a conversation with Ray Comfort, his book, Why Would Anyone Follow Jesus? 12 Reasons to Trust What the Bible Says About Jesus. The book is published by Baker Books. That's coming up tomorrow. Then on Wednesday, we're looking at a conversation with Leslie King, When Angels Fight, My Story Escaping Sex Trafficking and Leading a Revolt Against the Darkness. And finally, on Thursday, John Hopper, questioning God, answering questions worth asking. That's coming up this week right here on The Georgine Rice Show. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.